This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of Now and Not Yet. Pressing in when you're waiting, wanting, and restless for more. Written and narrated by best-selling author Ruth Cho Simons and is available everywhere audiobooks are sold. Hey friends, welcome to the Grace Enough podcast. I am your host, Amber Cullum. Each episode, I sit down with a guest to discuss their life journey and how the grace of God has impacted them along the way. After listening to today's episode, I hope you are encouraged that God can use you right now in the midst of your day-to-day life. Yes, it requires daily surrender and trust, but we must remember His grace is enough. Several months ago during episode 8, Shannon Martin encouraged me to read Assimilate or Go Home, Notes from a Failed Missionary on Rediscovering Faith by D.L. Mayfield. I read it, and I knew I wanted to sit down and chat with Danielle about all the years she has spent living and loving neighbors who are refugees. They are no longer a people group she is solely trying to convert, but instead, a community of friends she is doing life with and hoping for shalom. Listen to what Danielle has to say about the refugee, the immigrant, and the kingdom of God. If I'm talking to a Christian... It does get a little bit trickier when we talk about refugees and immigrants, because for me, it's such an intrinsic part of this kingdom of God and shalom theology. And in fact, you can see in the Old Testament, there is what theologian Walter Brueggemann calls the triad of the vulnerable. So that this triad that God talks about constantly, and it's the widow, the orphan, and the foreigner. So I do think that we need to reclaim that as a part of what makes Christians unique is we serve a God who's obsessed with the people that a society like a Pharaoh, like, yeah, Egypt could care less about those groups unless they can exploit them for work. Right. (laughs) And God is saying we are different. They are actually privileged. They are actually the one my eye is on. They are the ones who are blessed. And you as an entire community will be blessed if you will support them, if you will take care of them, if you will shelter them from the pharaohs of the world. And so that's what I would most hope that American Christians could reclaim. Today, my hope as you listen to this episode is that you dig deep and ask God to reveal to you how you can be a part of loving those who are vulnerable in the kingdom of God here on earth. Good morning, Danielle. Thank you so much for taking time to sit down with me this morning for the Grace Enough podcast. Thank you so much. Will you go ahead as we get started and just introduce our listeners to you, your family, and tell everybody a little bit about what you do? Sure. So my name is Danielle Mayfield, and I write as D.L. Mayfield. And I've been writing for, um, I would say, about nine years for mostly Christian publications. And I live in Portland, Oregon with my husband, who's a therapist, and my two kids. And I think... A short way to sum up my story is that I grew up the daughter of a pastor, and I wanted to be a missionary my whole life. And I ended up working with recently arrived Somali Bantu refugees here in my city of Portland, Oregon, while I was going to Bible college. And that experience changed my life, and it upended the way I saw the world. And um, it sounds nice when you put it that way, but honestly when you change your world, it's horrible, right? Mm -hmm. You have to come to terms with the fact that you have been wrong. You could be wrong in the future. You know, it it adds all this uncertainty. And so for me, I really had to address these two basic questions, which 
is my religion really good news for people who aren't just like me? And the second question was, is my country good mm-hmm. news for someone who isn't exactly like me? And those are two really big questions, and I do not have them fully answered. But I would say that's sort of where my life has taken me ever since I was 19 is sort wow. of on this journey with God, trying to honestly ask those questions and and having my life be changed mostly by refugee communities here in the U.S. Um, and so from that day forward, I've just sought out those communities. They've been a blessing to me. Um, I ended up getting my degree in teaching English to speakers of other languages, and I specialize in teaching English to people who have never had any access to education. So people who are not literate in any language, and it usually um, is women, because women tend to be people who have experienced the trauma of extreme poverty (laughs) or war or displacement. And so it's a very odd niche, but I love it. And I live in a neighborhood on the outskirts of Portland, Oregon, where there's a lot of immigrant refugee families, and we're having a great time. So do you teach, I mean, this is kind of off script a little bit, but do you teach just in your community or are you like at an official place where you, it's not necessarily all people you know that are coming in? Yeah, I think that's a great question. I have taught in a few different spaces. So I have taught at like community colleges here in Portland, but I quickly realized, again, the people I'm most drawn to are the people who have the most barriers to pursuing education. And again, they tend to be women who have never been to school before and they have a lot of small kids, so they can't go to community college per se. So I um, I love to start community English classes in apartment buildings. And so when we moved back to Portland, because we spent three years in Minneapolis with a mission organization to learn more about doing long-term work in yeah. these communities, when we moved back to Portland, we just heard about one of the supposedly worst apartment complexes in all of Portland, you know. Yeah. <laughs> they gave so, all these oh, we'll move statistics. there. And I was like, that sounds great. And it, it was great. There's so many families um, from so many different ethnic backgrounds and languages. And we just started doing English in the lobby of wow. the apartment building. And then we were doing it at our elementary school. And now we actually do have English classes um, at like a small, it's not really a community center because we don't really have those in our neighborhood, but just a small little building that, that right. we use. So, yeah. Well, and then off topic a little bit, you said your husband's a therapist. Like, is he a counseling therapist or is he some type of other therapist? Yeah, he works at a practice that specializes with people with ADHD. Okay. And he, he specializes in that specialty with doing couples counseling for people gotcha. with ADHD. <laughs> couples with <laughs> ADHD. <laughs> right? Yeah. I know. He's really good at it. That, I, that's a whole nother podcast episode, right? <laughs> Um, all right. Well, to back up just a little bit, so people kind of know how you came to know Jesus, because you did grow up in a family of a pastor, and there's a common thread a lot of times of kids who grow up in the church. And so share a little bit of your backstory of how you came to know Jesus, and then we're going to dive in to exactly, you know, how things really began to change for you. Yeah, I was an extremely religious child. Um, I loved reading missionary biographies. That was probably my favorite genre to read. Mm. And I really wanted to do big things for God. And I did feel a connection to stories of inequality. So even as a young child, right, I would be reading a story about the way things worked in other countries and just saying, how come I get to grow up Mm -hmm. in this city? I get to grow up 
with my own bedroom. You know, I even right. as a child, I thought about why am I like this? And other people have a different experience. You know, when I look back on it now, I do think it's fascinating that I wanted to be a missionary from age six. I seriously told my parents wow. I was going to be a missionary to Madagascar when I was six. And I do think that I knew that I was a pretty strong, opinionated female. <laughs> <laughs> and in our particular background, you know, women could not be pastors or elders, um, mm-hmm. but they could be missionaries, which oh, yeah. is actually a really horrible um racist and sexist belief that I right now. <laughs> um, but you know, that's the truth of my story is that there's good and bad mixed up in all of these motives we have, um, including how we want to serve God and how we view our role in the world. And so I've had to do a lot of unpacking of the missionary complex, mm-hmm. the savior complex, And I think that's really necessary and vital work. At the same time, it propelled me into these situations where I was forced to really confront myself. So I do think it's a mixed bag. And I do try and look at my younger self with some compassion exactly, (laughs) because I wanted um, to love God. I do think that in my mind, there is a hierarchy of who is the most spiritual and, you know, missionaries were at the top. So that could be why I wanted to do that. I was trying to earn the love of God in that way. Yeah, I mean, I think that whole thinking, it can really, really happen as a child who grows up in the church. Like, if I'm just good enough, then I earn the favor of God. And that is just so opposite from the grace of God. Right. I understand it, but it's it's fascinating because now, you know, I have a nine-year-old daughter. Oh, I know. And so parenting really also brings up uh, this yeah. stuff, right? Well, and it helps us have a little more compassion, I think, on our parents, because part of that is just in us. We think we can constantly earn stuff. And our culture certainly plays into that idea. (laughs) Right. And so just try to think of, well, how would I communicate, Mm -hmm. you know? So I, yeah, it helps me have compassion on myself and also helps me reframe, like, the things I want for my daughter are still the things I want for myself. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> to know that God loves me, to know that God loves my neighbors. That's, right. yeah. I still need that every day. Yeah. Well, your book, I read it a while back, Assimilate or Go Home. And like we've kind of already started talking about, the tagline of that is, you know, about being a failed missionary and rediscovering your faith. And so just walk us through what that actually means. Like, why did you, how did you come to terms with the fact that you were a failed missionary? And how did you rediscover your faith? Yeah, I think failure is not something I'm necessarily embarrassed of. And I knew it was a provocative title, but the truth is, you know, I've been working in refugee communities now for almost 15 years and, um, you know, I have failed to convert anyone to be just like me, right? (laughs) I'm a white, evangelical, middle-class American woman. Right. Nobody has turned out just like me. And Mm -hmm. I think that's great, honestly. I will say there is the sort of religious component. So I did go and get my undergrad in intercultural studies, which is, you know, missionary 101. It just made it seem so easy. You go out and you give the easy Roman road, you know, Talk, you show the yeah. Jesus film and then people will just convert. And I tried that a yeah. lot. I would show the Jesus film to people. I would try and have conversations 
about Jesus, I would try and do everything I was learning in my classes with these newly arrived families who I should say, you know, they come from Muslim backgrounds. They come from much more tribal and communal backgrounds, extremely Mm -hmm. poor histories of oppression, all that stuff going on. And I remember I, I, tell this story in in my book I showed them the Jesus film Mm -hmm. like to this packed apartment so many people in there and at the very end the elder of the community and again we have all these language barriers too right right he held up two hands and one hand he kind of held at his chest he's like this is Jesus but Muhammad is here and he put his other hand way higher oh no (laughs) you know that was just his way of saying like Jesus is fine. You know, it was a prophet. Right. Great, we like, like him too. Believe in Muhammad. Yeah. We believe in Muhammad. And since he was the elder, everybody's like, yep, case closed. Wow. And so then I was left to be like, well, now what? Like yeah. in my classes, they never told me what to do yeah. when people were like, thank you. But no. And I sort of had the impression that you're supposed to move on. You're supposed to go find other people. You're supposed to Mm. keep going and trying to find the ones who will convert. And instead, I really felt God say, I don't want you to stick around. I don't want you to go anywhere. And I kept showing up. And at this point, you didn't live there, right? I mean, you didn't live in the community yet. You were just going on a daily basis because you were quite young at this point, correct? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I was just 19. I was just going to college. And I will say, again, trying to look back at what was going on with me, um, Bible college was a really segregated space for me, right? Mm -hmm. So it was mostly all white people. We all believe the exact same thing. We were all believing the exact same doctrine. At our school, the vast majority of professors all came from one specific seminary. So we were very homogenous in multiple ways. And that is truly what propelled me to be like, I got to... I got to do something here. And that's why I signed up to volunteer with refugees through Catholic Charities, which is how I met these families. And yeah, I would just go show up. Um, I was supposed to help them learn English, but I didn't know how to teach English. (laughs) And I also quickly realized there's so many barriers. They had experienced so much trauma. And again, they didn't come from a literate background at all. Right. They have no language, like actual skill set. Is that correct? Besides how they communicate with one another? Yeah, I mean, they're great at communicating. They're great at, like, uh, remembering certain bus stops, but they can't read, you know, the bus signs. And some people can't even read numbers. Like, they have no numeracy skills. And trauma just does a number Mm -hmm. on people's brains. So I would go and, like, have a worksheet to talk about the weather. And we'd go through it, and they'd all know it. And then I'd come back two days later, and it was as if we'd never done it. They couldn't remember single thing. So I started to quickly realize, okay, memory retention is impacted by trauma, um, you know, all this stuff right. going on. Also, they were having a horrible time figuring out how to pay the bills. It's Absolutely. really hard to learn anything, right? Yeah. So I would be there and I would be there when they got bills, when they got phone calls from people trying to scam them, mm-hmm. when they got bad news after bad news. And I just, again, I just started to say, what is going on here? I'd never been around people who were experiencing poverty uh, for that long term. I'd never seen how hard life was. I think in my mind, I had this idea, well, you just came from, you know, a war-torn country. America's going to be the land of opportunity for you. Mm. And just realizing all of these barriers they had, not only were they a religion that was villainized, you know, in our country. They had black skin. They had no education. They'd experienced tons of trauma. They, you know, the U.S. Refugee Resettlement Program only gives people eight months of assistance. 
financial assistance and like English language. And I just thought that is not even a drop in the bucket to what these families need. And so again, I felt like God just said, just keep showing up. And, and I did. And I eventually got sucked into their lives almost as if, you know, sort of like a bizarro auntie figure (laughs) or cousin. And I did hang out there so much that, uh, the apartment managers eventually said, you know, you might want to think about just moving in. You're here all the time. And I started English classes and homework clubs and all this stuff. And I thought, oh, okay. So it was never on my radar. It wasn't like intentional. Right. It was just like, oh, this would be easier. And sure. <laughs> sure. I will move in and spend sure. my entire, and, and... I'm spending my life here anyways. <laughs> so ever since then, I've, I've lived in either apartments or uh, neighborhoods that are primarily immigrant refugee families. Well, and during that season, you write about how the time came when you really started to experience a fundamental change in what you believed about the kingdom of God being a lot less of it's somewhere up above us and a lot more the here and now and the world we live in becoming more and more like the kingdom of God through essentially the way we live our lives. Dive into that a little bit and explain kind of a little bit about what happened and how that shift what was that shift? Yeah, I think that growing up Christian, there is a danger of having a lot of this incredible language watered down almost through overuse, Mm -hmm. right? And so I do remember in Bible college, we had this class all about the kingdom of God. And every class I would just say, but what is it? Like, it's the number one thing Jesus talks about, but like, what is it? I don't understand. And I think I was trying to articulate that my whole life I'd been around people that talked about the kingdom of God, said they wanted the kingdom of God, but our lives still looked the Mm. same um, as everybody else around me. And I just was trying to understand that tension. And so I think uh, a big turning point for me was, you know, studying how Jesus himself talked about his own ministry. Mm Because I could tell you Jesus came died, saved us from our sins, was resurrected, is coming back again, you know. But how did Jesus talk about what he came to do on this earth? And so um, Luke 4 has become a very important passage for me when Jesus is in the temple and reading from the scroll in Isaiah saying, like, this is what I've come to do, right? I've come to proclaim good news to the poor. I've come to proclaim... Yeah, set the captives free, uh, you know, the recovery of sight to the blind and to set free those who've been oppressed. Mm. Even as I'm talking about, I get chills because after I'd been working with refugees, when I read that passage, I thought, oh, my gosh, I know people. I know people who have been oppressed. I know people who have these horrible physical ailments. You know, I know people who need to be set free. I know people who are poor. Jesus is good news for them. You know, mm, yeah, and I believe that with my whole heart. So what what will that practically mean for me? Yeah. So my next book that's coming out in the spring is is called The Myth of the American Dream. And, and that sort of became the framework for me is not only recognizing Jesus was obsessed with people who <laughs> were poor and yes. sick and sad and had been oppressed. But sort of turning it on its head and saying, what about the opposite places? Mm. What about, you know, affluence and safety and wellness and autonomy and freedom and power? And how much of my life had been oriented in those directions? It was just a really shocking realization for me. So 
I want to believe Jesus and I want to be where Jesus always said he was going to be at work, which means I need to orient my life in some different spaces. And I just don't think I will ever get over the the reality that the kingdom of God is God's dream for the world, which again, sounds very religious. But when you look at the scriptures, God's dream for the world really is shalom, right? And shalom is a phrase that's used over 500 times in the scriptures. And it can just sound really disembodied. But the more I've studied and the more I've studied scholars who come from non-dominant backgrounds, so indigenous scholars, you know, black Christian women theologians, they really point out that shalom, you can tell if shalom is really Mm. happening in a community by how the most marginalized are experiencing it or if they're not. So when we think about loving our neighbors or the kingdom of God, the way we can tell if our neighbors are being loved well or if the kingdom of God is coming to earth is we have to look at the people who are the most at risk in our Mm. society. And that was a really helpful reframing. Mm-hmm. If you want to know if the kingdom of God is happening on earth as it is in heaven, you got to go to the poor. <laughs> yeah. You got to go see if they're experiencing God's dream for the world, if they're flourishing. You got to go to the lowest rated school. You got to go to the prisons. I mean, Jesus said this over and over again, right? You got to feed those who are hungry. hungry. You got to give clothes to those who have no clothes. You need to bury the dead who have no money to even mm. mourn properly. And that's, how you'll know. And once those communities are experiencing shalom, we all experience shalom. We all experience the kingdom of God. So for me, it was that sort of reframing. Yeah. Well, just for somebody that might be listening that is like, I don't even really know what shalom is. I read that in the word or I've heard that word from a stage briefly. What is shalom? Yeah, well, I would say read um, Lisa Sharon Harper. She wrote a book called The Very Good Gospel. And that's basically what the whole book is about. And yeah. she's so much better at talking about it than me. And also, um, I'm really into Randy Woodley, an indigenous okay. theologian here in the Pacific Northwest. And he calls it uh, the community of creation. So it doesn't mm-hmm. even just have to do with people, but actually the earth and um, animals and our kind of our shared responsibility to each other. Mm-hmm. But I would say, for me, I think of Shalom as the flourishing of an entire community, yeah. of an entire neighborhood. And you could even see that right in the Old Testament and some of the moral codes. It's uh, my husband was just telling me he was reading something about the Torah. And the laws of Torah don't work if only one or two people are following them, right? They only work if everybody is following them. And so that again is shalom, we have to get out of our really individualized American (sighs) experience, even of the kingdom of God, you know, shalom is for everyone in the community. And if one person isn't experiencing shalom, then nobody is in God's And it's not just this idea of you're just not working hard enough. You're just not doing enough. You're just, you know, I think sometimes people are like, oh, well, they're in that situation because they didn't do enough. And I'm like, that's just a lie. And obviously you've not spent very much time around poor people or in conversation with people different from you, or you would realize that there are many people who have experienced what they experienced because- They've tried to do things and they get shut out or they get pushed back and back and back because it is an injustice. We live in a society that does not treat everyone equally. Right. But if you are treated rather well in that kind of a society, it makes sense why you would create some barriers or Mm -hmm. rules to say, I don't have a responsibility to those Mm -hmm. people who aren't experiencing shalom. I'm just interested in peeling back some of these phrases we say to ourselves and some of these ways we distance ourselves. Um, Because I do think 
a hallmark of Christianity is this radical notion that we do have responsibility for each other. Mm-hmm. We really do. And I see that that was what Jesus's life was all about to the point that he died for us. Yeah. I mean, we talk a lot about the self-sacrificial nature of, of Jesus's love, but it is so hard to do. It's it just, is so hard to do. It's so hard to do. At the same time, I do think Jesus also had a life that showed us um, there's so much joy, mm. honestly, in that. You know, I know you had Shannon Martin on yeah. your podcast a while back, and she's just, again, to me, an example of someone who's like, I'm having a great time, and I wouldn't do this yeah. if I did it. Um, and we talk a lot about when you open yourself up to responsibility to other people, you know, you open yourself up to definitely have your heart be broken, to mm-hmm. definitely question how you think the world works. But you also are opened up to an actual vibrant life mm-hmm. where you experience Christ in other people in the world. You get to see that God is still present and is working. I, I'm sorry. I just sometimes it comes off like it's sort of dour and, and horrible. But right. I wouldn't be doing these things if I didn't really love my life and my neighborhood and yeah and all of it. it's yeah. it's a lovely thing to feel responsibility. Of course, it can also feel horrible too, but you get to experience the joys together. Then I guess is right how I would put of it. togetherness. Which yeah yeah I mean again we could go quite a long way and we're going to talk a little bit about your passion for neighborliness and what's kind of fueled that particularly in a society where we are just becoming more and more individualistic. But before we do that, because I know people ask me this, I don't want to say all the time, but frequently, what is the difference between a refugee and an an immigrant? Well, I am not an expert, but the short definition is that a refugee is someone who has been recognized by like the UNHCR to be someone who is in danger Mm-hmm. of their life, you know, either through poverty or war or religion or all these things. So, and they have a very intense vetting process that used yeah. to be two years. Now it's much longer. Um, and so they get a few extra like provisions and protections. Like if they make it to the U S they do get, I believe five years of like health insurance, which, yeah. you know, immigrants aren't necessarily given. I do think it's, really interesting. So there's so many people who have been designated refugees in the world and less than 1% of them ever end up getting resettled. And only a fraction of those end up getting resettled in the US. And immigrants are just people who are moving to another place, right? And so there's so many By choice of, it could be work, it could be, I just want to live somewhere else. Yeah. Um, Not necessarily from something terrible happening. Right. I will say that we only designate people from certain countries as refugees. So there's actually Mm. no pathway for people from Latin American countries besides Cuba, I believe, to even be designated a refugee. Really? Does that make sense? Yeah, that makes sense to me. So that is sort of hard sometimes when I hear these conversations, you know, we should focus on refugees. And a part of me is like, yeah, but that that leaves out the vast majority of the world, honestly, where there's no legal pathway to even be designated a refugee. Gotcha. Yeah. yeah. So I did not know complex. that. So of course. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah. So a lot of like, I work in a lot of refugee spaces here and, you know, sometimes we'll even like put a, together a banner saying welcome in all these languages, you know, of people who come from refugee backgrounds and there's almost never Spanish on it just because there's wow. 
There's no Spanish-speaking refugees besides Cubans. Um, so, yeah, I had no idea. Yeah. So that's a good... Well, while we're talking about just refugees, immigrants, you've already mentioned that you've spent... What did you, what did you say? Like 15 to 18 years now? Yeah, 15, 15 years, yeah. Maybe 16. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> I'm getting old. Listen, girl, when you add kids and age, you just... After a while, I'm like, I don't know. It's somewhere between 15 and 25 yeah. years. Yeah. <laughs> um. Because you have personal experience with people coming from these backgrounds, and I don't just mean experience as in you've gone in and and tried to be the savior of these people, but they're your friends. They're mm-hmm. people you sit down and have dinner with. They're the people your kids go to school with. Mm-hmm. What would you like to say to somebody who may be listening who just has that mindset of let's keep them out? Yeah, I know that's a, a loaded really, question. So answer well, it's as a you really, wish. It's a really difficult question for me because I, it is so personal mm-hmm. and um, it is not theoretical for me. I will say that people who come from positions of forced migration, so if people have been forced to leave their country, uh, you know, are very complex people. Mm-hmm. And I think what was really eye opening for me is most people, if they could, they would not be here. Mm. They want to be with their moms. They want to be in their community. They want their food. They don't want to be ostracized for their religion and for all these things. Um, Such a good perspective. They are here and they're making the best of it, but their life is one of perpetual sorrow, honestly. Mm. And so I just recently watched my friend had like a VHS tape of her wedding in Afghanistan. It was wow. like the first one that happened in her town after the Taliban left. Oh. And so it turned into this huge party because nobody had been allowed to like do anything. Go- yeah. And so we converted the VHS to a DVD and we had this little party at her house. And it was so great to watch this celebration. At the same time, she's pointing out all the people on that video who have died oh. uh, due to conflict, due to war. And also just like her mom died and she couldn't, visit her, right? So my friend got refugee status was here, but she can't travel back to her country until she becomes a citizen, which is a five-year process. Her mom got sick last year and died. And so my friend missed out on that. It's just, it's just horrible, right? And so she's making the best of it, but they live in a tiny apartment. Her husband works at a convenience store. So watching this video was such an interesting mix of their life was really hard there Mm -hmm. and it's really hard here. And so much more complicated. I would say um, if I'm talking to a Christian, it does get a little bit trickier when we talk about refugees and immigrants, because for me, it's such an intrinsic part of this kingdom of God and shalom theology. And in fact, you can see in the Old Testament, there is what theologian Walter Brueggemann calls the triad of the vulnerable. So that this triad that God talks about constantly, and it's the widow, the orphan, and the foreigner. Mm-hmm. So I do think that we need to reclaim that as a part of what makes Christians unique is we serve a God who's obsessed with the people that a society like a Pharaoh, like yeah, Egypt, right? as an Egypt, outcast. Yeah. Egypt could care less about those groups unless they can exploit them for work. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and God is saying we are different. Like, they are actually privileged. They are actually the one my eye is on. They are the oh, ones wow. who are blessed. 
And you as an entire community will be blessed if you will support them, if you will take care of them, if you will shelter them from the pharaohs of the world. And so Mm. that's what I would most hope that American Christians could reclaim is I know it doesn't necessarily make sense if we're talking about national security, although, you know, (laughs) refugees have never, they never (laughs) had a terrorist attack on American soil. And people stop living out of fear about everything. Like, ah, anything can happen and we can't just constantly live in fear. It's so fascinating because I do think fear is so incredible. I I love this one author named Eula Bish. She talks about this phenomenon known as people being terrified of sharks, but not of mosquitoes. And how... (laughs) You know, sharks kill six people a year, but we dedicate a whole week to them on Discovery Channel. (laughs) And mosquitoes kill what? Like two million a year? Yes. Their only purpose is to suck your blood and kill you, basically. (laughs) But why? Like, why as humans do we focus our fear? So I really see that with refugees. Uh, We have really chosen to focus our fear on this group of people because it's convenient Um, It doesn't make logical sense, so I don't really think we can even argue it logically. But it does probably come from some deeper fears we have about wanting to control our own lives and and control the safety of our world. And really, we need to be much more worried about mental health crises taking people and, you know, these kinds of things. So it's not necessarily a logical conversation I can have with people because I get really emotional, but I do Mm -hmm. find so much comfort in Orthodox Christian theology that says, I serve a God who's obsessed the foreigner. And that really keeps me going. Yeah, well, and as we continue talking, I'm just going to throw this out there because you've already mentioned a couple of books and just people um, that I will definitely link to in the show notes. But is there any people who pop in your mind that you would say, yes, if you want to get you want to expand your mind on this and help you to push yourself a little bit out there? Are there a couple of other books or authors or speakers that you would say, go look for them? Yeah, I uh, love the folks at World Relief. They're one of the main evangelical refugee resettlement programs out there. And in particular, uh, Matthew Sorens is like one of their main spokespeople. He's a wonderful person to follow on Twitter and just to stay informed, updated, and they always have amazing like theological resources. Mm. And he he co-wrote a book with a few people, Jenny Yang and others uh, about welcoming the stranger. And okay. it's perfect for people who want to talk about this in their church communities, in their Christian communities. I love them. I also just read a novel, which I'm not a huge fiction person, but it's called Exit West. And I am definitely forgetting the name of the author. <laughs> It's all right. But we'll it's, link it. We'll get it. It's like a magical realism approach to people who are forced to leave their homes and yeah. the communities. And it just really brought out a lot of that tragedy of having to say goodbye. And so if people like novels, I would say yeah. that's actually a great resource. I do have uh, one of my good friends has a book coming out in the spring called After the Last Border, where she follows two resettled refugees in Austin, Texas. She knows both of them. They're both her neighbors. One is a Christian woman from Burma and one is a Muslim woman from Syria. And it's going to be a game changer. It goes through all the history of U.S. refugee resettlement, but then really gives these two women the chance to share their stories, different religions, different backgrounds, but it's incredible. Yeah. Cause I mean, I just want people to have access to that. And sometimes I think 
it's really, really easy to have an opinion about something and have done no research or only listen to the blurbs you hear on the news. And it's absolutely crucial in whatever camp you sit in when it comes to refugees, when it comes to racism, whatever it is, read people who have views different than you, but who also will just expand your mind a little bit, challenge you to think. Yeah. And I, can I, can I share a quick story? Absolutely. So I've, I've been doing this work for, you know, 15 or so every years. And my mom has been pretty involved and I've, you know, always try and rope in my family members and my friends to come do all these things. And it was only in the past few years that my mom really got over her fear of Muslim refugees. And I was shocked. She was very vulnerable and honest with me and told me that. And I just thought, but you've been coming to my English class. You've been doing this stuff for years. Like, what changed? And she just said it was understanding how, like how similar we are. Mm. We both want to follow God. We both pray for our kids. We both Mm. have the same worries and fears. But I kind of said, well, where do you think this fear came from? And it's just from the years and years and years of being discipled to be afraid from Christian sources, honestly. And so for me, it was both encouraging and deeply sobering to realize this is going to take a lot of work and a lot of humility. And even like for my own mom, it took years and years of relationship. And now she is the grandma of our neighborhood. She works at our school as a reading teacher. Everybody calls her Mimi. Like she doesn't have a real name. She's just Mimi to everybody. And it's incredible, but I don't want to gloss over the fact that it it took a long time to get there. And she kept pressing in. And I think that's another, yeah. And another good point to that is that if you're involved in this work at all, invite, invite people who are close to you alongside you, because they may not always say yes, but if they do and they keep coming back, eventually transformation does take place. Yeah. Yeah. So because you're involved in such an intimate neighborhood and you really do have a heart for this neighborliness. I feel like it's crucial to continue talking about this in Christian circles because we are quickly, I mean, when I feel like we can't get any more individualistic, we get more individualistic and I'm speaking to myself. (laughs) Um, (laughs) So why is it so important to you? I guess I just want you to talk about neighborliness and what you've seen it do in your life and in the community in which you live. Yeah, I think it can be hard if we grow up in the U.S. and grow up on these trajectories towards individualism and individual success being yeah. so important. We don't even know what we're missing. Uh, so maybe that's true for a lot of people. I do have a friend who lives in Myanmar, and she is from the U.S., but has lived in Myanmar for so many years. And when she comes back, she's just like, these suburban neighborhoods they are so isolated where she lives in Myanmar. All her neighbors know exactly what she's doing. They know exactly what she's cooking for dinner because they watched her go to the market, buy the ingredients. Like, you know, that kind of makes my heart want to curdle a little bit. I still, I still (laughs) like my personal space, but when she tries and tells them about America, they just feel so sad for us. And same thing with my neighbors from different backgrounds, especially, um, Muslim backgrounds, they are very used to communal ways of life. And so I love living in apartments. It's funny, my husband remembers it a little differently. He's like, remember how everybody just came in our door all the time and we were never alone? And I was like, it was so great. And we ended up buying a house around the corner from this apartment complex where we lived. And we're on the walk to school. So I still see people every day. Uh, But I am, I am lonely. Like, 
A house yeah. is designed for loneliness, for isolation. I remember like my kids, you know, are nine and four and just thinking, oh man, we should really put up like a swing set or something. But the second you do that, you lose the motivation to go walk to the park <laughs> where you see your neighbors, right? Yeah, or but you spend think- a lot more time in your backyard, which can also just be so isolating for people in suburban areas. Yeah, and so even just trying to think, how can we force ourselves to value community? So for us, you know, not having a swing set, trying to walk to the tiny little local park more, um, trying to think of ways to be out in our front yard. Not only is it more enjoyable, but honestly, it is a safe way to live your life. Like, I know all my neighbors, they know me. Supposedly, we live in a very unsafe neighborhood. But let me tell you, nothing has ever happened to us because we are all watching out for each other all the time. My neighbors will come up and be like, we saw this car in your driveway. Like, do you know who that is? And I'm like, yes, yes, it's our friends. But it's so fabulous to have people watching out for you in that way. And I think that's how it's supposed to be. We're supposed to all know who's in our neighborhoods and we're all supposed to work towards the flourishing of everybody. So it would be very hard for me to go back to living where I didn't know my neighbors. I think I would feel really afraid Yeah, afraid and isolated. That's what I noticed the most is the isolation and how dangerous it can be in our mind. And I think we see that as we see some statistics rising when it comes to mental health and suicide and all of that. And I'm not saying all of that is a direct result of not knowing your neighbors, but I do believe it certainly played a part yeah, because we just live isolated lives and we think we know people by communicating one sentences on the internet and you just you're not intimately involved in someone's life in that way. And I think that social media is so fabulous in so many yeah, respects. It does not take the place no. of neighboring. <laughs> no, absolutely not. For, well, and it's interesting. Us, yeah, the story that you shared. I have a friend who. She obviously is from America, but they live in England right now, and they are getting closer to finishing up their five years there. And I mean, it hasn't been that long ago. She sent me an email, and we were just talking back and forth a little bit. And she said, you know, there's been two things here that have like been polar opposite. One is it's been hard because I live in an area where there's just no Christian community. There just aren't very many believers. So that part feels lonely. But on the other hand, we live in a community where everybody is involved in each other's lives and we do life together. And it feels so nice to just be known by your neighbors and to know the people your kids go to school with and you just do life with these people. And she said, I don't know how we're going to come back to the States. Like, I just don't know how we're going to adjust to being back in the States because that just has never been the story for us. Yeah. And so it was so interesting to me as, and I've thought and thought and thought about that because it's like, right. You long for Christian fellowship but then you also long to be known by your neighborhood. Oh, yeah. And I would say in the U.S., lower income or under-resourced communities have really been the ones leading the way, right? Like they need to rely on each other, and they do. And so, you know, our local elementary school is technically the second lowest rated school in all of Oregon. (laughs) And if you look it up on the Internet, it's terrifying to a middle class white lady like myself to see this like huge Mm -hmm. red score of one out of ten. 10 being the best, you know, Yeah. but when you step inside the halls, it's just a vibrant 
chaotic, amazing place that really mm. is dedicated to the flourishing of every single kid. Wow. And they don't get to decide not to work with certain, you know, they, they just are doing their best with everybody. And so the school is really the lifeblood of our neighborhood. And so is the local library. You know, I wish I could say it was a church, yeah. but that's not reality. And so as a Christian, I just say like, well, we have this school, we have this library. That's where we're going to be showing up. And that's where we're going to be hanging out with people. Um, if we ever get a nice park or a community center or a church, I'll be there too. You right, know? exactly. That's where we are. And it just feels so good to be in those spaces where everybody is kind of on the same page as far as we all need this. Therefore, yeah. we will all work together to make it good. And the second people start opting out to get what's better for them and theirs is when we start to see inequality increase, you know, in our societies. And that's what makes it yeah. so that we even have these schools that are very low rated and have these high concentrations of kids in poverty. Like our school, 98% of them qualify for free or reduced lunch. Yeah. You know, in an ideal world, we don't concentrate people by poverty. It, it's better for everybody when we are truly integrated. Uh, but that is not how an individualist consumer mindset works. So that's not how America works. <laughs> Absolutely. It does not. And I mean, that leads me into my next question. You know, what for a, a woman like me um, and so many people listening who live in a middle upper class neighborhood where everybody looks the same. I don't want to say everybody, but most people look the same. Someone like me who also sends her kids to private school. But yet there's still this part of me that is always teetering into do I need to step into downward mobility do I it's there there's this churning in our hearts because I know what you said earlier about this triangle of Jesus is obsessed with people who are poor and are widows and are orphan and foreigners and um how can you encourage someone like me or someone else who is listening to pursue that yeah, I think that's a really big question. And one thing I've been thinking about is, again, even when we say, like, I want to love my neighbors, it can just, it's hard to know what that means. And so yeah. for me, I think a better way of framing it, and I think it is a biblical way of, of framing it, is, is saying, where is there injustice in our communities? Because where there is injustice, we have neighbors who are suffering. And those are the neighbors that God would like us to focus on. <laughs> mm -hmm. And that doesn't mean we don't try and love everybody, but we need to be a little bit better at saying we actually do have a, a focus here. We need to see where there is injustice, where there is no shalom. And we need to be asking God, how do you want us to be a part of to bringing this. your peace and justice in the world? And I think everybody has different responses to that. I'm sure you already have some ideas <laughs> of of injustices that oh, are already sure. on your radar, where God is already inviting you into that place because we are not all supposed to do the same thing. Yeah, I do think we have become conditioned to either downplay the injustice we notice, mm -hmm. to push away our responsibility to other people, or we seek to come up with really easy ways to fix it. Yeah. <laughs> Which is not going to work. No. That's not going to work. But... We all have these different injustices I think are probably already on our radar from yeah. God. And we need to prayerfully consider what are our next steps. And I I don't think that 
reading books or following people on social media, listening to different sermons, that's not nothing. It's like, not. I know. We, we do live in this incredible time of being exposed to people of different backgrounds. And you've already yeah. mentioned that being really important. I would say as someone who grew up Christian, but again, only this very specific stream, mm -hmm. for me, seeking out Christians from different backgrounds, like... Yeah. Maybe that's where we all should start. I don't right. know. But seeing what God's heart looks like through the eyes of people who've experienced life very differently from us, I think is life-changing and will help us see those next steps. Well, and I'm always, I know somebody listening because I know most of what the population of my listeners are are going to be like, well, we can't do everything, Amber. Not everybody's <laughs> going to pack themselves up and move out to the, you know, the poorest place. And I'm like, that's exactly, I know, right? <laughs> I'm like, that's exactly what I'm saying, though. When you feel the pricking on your heart, yeah. that's something, like you said, you're sensitive to some injustice and you keep pushing it away. My challenge to myself and other people is just to take the next step to press into that. And one of my friends in Bible study just this week, who's working with some refugees, said the same thing. Like she does a lot of life with them because of the school her children are in. And it's just a high population of refugee children there. And she had said, you know, I keep, I kept knowing and knowing and knowing I needed to step into this next thing. And I just was refusing to do it. And I finally was like, okay, I, I've got to quit being afraid. I'm afraid things won't work out. I'm afraid I'm going to fail. I'm afraid of all this stuff. But that just means I'm sitting here not taking the next step. And so she did, and she's still afraid, and she's still doing it. It's kind of like your mom, right? Like, I live in fear, yeah. but step into it. Just give it a try, you know? Feel uncomfortable. Yeah. It's okay. And it looks different for everybody. I do think that it sounds a little bit easy to say, just go where you're feeling, God. But um, if you are actually doing that, your life is going to get really uncomfortable. Yes. <laughs> If you're not uncomfortable, you might be doing it wrong. I, I don't mean, know. it's the truth. Maybe that's terrible to say. <laughs> I mean, it is the truth, though. I know exactly what you're saying. I mean, even when we mentored a young lady when we lived in Tampa, there were some things that, about it that it just, oh, it just made me cringe. But same thing, like she had Spanish-speaking parents, and so her biggest need was just someone to help her with homework. You know, I mean, we take for granted. If you grew up in a home that your parents were able to just help you, like you had a question, yeah. so you were just able to sit down and get help. Yeah. Well, she just didn't have that. And so half the reason why she wasn't getting the grade she wanted is because she just had a question that went unanswered. Right. And um, that was really easy for us to help her with. Now, right. did our mentorship lead into a lot more than just that? Absolutely. Yeah. But there were times when I was just like, oh my gosh, I just, I'm tired of doing this. Yeah. I mean, not, not the helping with the homework, but the digging in and the showing up. Right. I look back now and I'm like, it changed her. It changed us. It was great. Yeah. So yeah. anyways, we could keep talking forever and ever, but I'm going to, <laughs> right. Um, this, this is what I do in every episode. I'm like, oh, I'm only going to keep it to 45 minutes so that I talk for forever. I do want to close out our show. We usually ask a couple of questions, but I'm just going to ask this last question of you. If you had the opportunity to sit down with your great-grandchildren and offer them some wisdom, what's something that you would like them to know or that you would like to share with them? Oh, this is such a... It's deep. <laughs> deep question, but I think I... 
already said it earlier, right? What I think about my kids, I do want them to care about the injustice of the world. Mm -hmm. But I also think about being surrounded by Muslim refugees and immigrants from different backgrounds. What do I want to call them into, right? Do I want them to feel overwhelmed by the world? Do I want them to feel like they have to save the world? You know, all these things I, I grew up with. No, I want them to know God loves them. Yeah. That God is present in our world. God is active. God sees all the injustice and the joys. Yes, yes. And God feels responsible for all of us and is inviting this, us into that relationship too. Mm-hmm. And so I do think the number one thing, though, I would, I would want to communicate is that God loves you, which... That sounds so basic, but I still don't get it. I still don't. I know well, because yeah, God loves you is something when you grew up as a Christian that you hear all the time. But I do think if you continue to grow, you know, your relationship with Christ, your understanding of him, it does take on a deeper meaning. Yeah. And it is indescribable. It's an indescribable it thing because it's so deep and so true and through the pain and through the heartache and through the disappointment and the joy. And I mean, on and on and on. He really does love you. Right. And I do think if we can be rooted in that, that will transform the way we approach our neighbors and our neighborhood. If we are like for me, I grew up trying to change the world to earn God's love. How different would it be if I am filled with the knowledge of the love of God and that propels me to go out into the world with that assurance? That's a really different. It's a very (laughs) different. That's what I want. Absolutely. My kids. Yeah. Well, before we sign off, tell our listeners where they can find you on the web and um, the name of your book. I mean, I already mentioned it, but tell us again. Yeah. So I am on social media as DL Mayfield. um, I think it's D underscore L underscore Mayfield on Instagram and Twitter. I'm very spicy on Twitter. So be warned. (laughs) Twitter is a pretty spicy place. (laughs) It is. You got to be a little spicy to be on there. Um, I also have a website. I don't update it terribly often, but it's dlmayfield.com. And there's lots of links to different articles I've written if people want to see some of my work. My first book is called Assimilate or Go Home, Notes from a Failed Missionary on Rediscovering Faith. You can find it online most places. And then I do have my second book coming out in the spring called The Myth of the American Dream, Reflections on Affluence, Autonomy, Safety, and Power. So we want to talk about things. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thank you so much. Thanks so much, Danielle, for being here today. I really appreciate it. This has been great. Thank you for listening to today's episode. Resources, links, and quotes from today's conversation can be found at graceenoughpodcast.com under the show notes tab. If you are enjoying the show, I would like to ask you a few favors. Number one, make sure you are subscribed to the podcast. You can head over to Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play, and iHeartRadio. Clicking that subscribe button helps to make sure you never miss a new episode of the podcast. Number two, if you enjoy the show, would you take a moment to leave a review on iTunes? Those reviews help me to know how the show is impacting you. And number three, the best way to grow is for people like you to share it with your friends. Will you share your favorite Grace Enough podcast episode via text, email, or social media? Again, I'm so grateful for each one of you who listen week in and week out. Thank you for listening to the Grace Enough Podcast. Tune in next time.